0: For those remaining in the auditorium, take your Bibles, if you would, and head on over to the book of Jude, the little book of Jude. Just before the last book of the Bible, the revelation of the Christ, we have this little sermon, sermon notes, this little letter of Jude. Allow me then this morning to read the first 16 verses uh, in your hearing. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the Archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said the lord rebuke you but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively woe to them for they walked in the way of cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to balaam's error and perished in korah's rebellion these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as a feast with you without fear shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever it was also about these that enoch the seventh from adam prophesied saying behold the lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord, and Merry Christmas. (laughs) This is not a passage that is full of the warm and fuzzies. But as we were looking at our preaching schedule, we finished the letter to the churches at Rome, the church at Rome, and we've now been systematically going through a few smaller letters, smaller books in the New Testament, looked at 2 John, 3 John, and now Jude. And although it may not at first blush appear to be a very loving message, it is in fact coming from a place of love and is a message that we all need to hear. I think it was at Bible College that I took note of something that I saw happening over my three years there, and it was happening in my own heart and life. It was an environment that was structured to glorify God, to promote learning of His Word and praise to Him, about character development so that individuals would become more like Christ. And yet, even in that environment, and maybe I say especially in that environment, there was a tendency towards and and a massive temptation towards drift. Because I experienced there in my own heart and life what I have called sort of group spirituality. And that because the environment was spiritual, and because the environment was structured to promote God's glory and advance his cause of the gospel, it was easy to kind of go along with that flow and not have it personally impact me, and so I could kind of ride the coattails of other people's relationship with God. What that also meant was that I was not as aware, alert, and awake to the drift in my own life and perhaps the drift in others because the structure was so good and 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 healthy, or appeared to be, and glorifying to God, that perhaps questions weren't always asked that needed to be, and that is not in any way an indictment on the Bible college that I intended. That is indeed an examination of my own heart and life, and I would contend that that is something that we need to be aware of here at Grace Baptist Church as well. There is no such thing as group spirituality in a true sense. There is the blessing of corporate worship and and the coming together of the church of Jesus Christ, but just because you are here does not mean that you are personally participating in that necessarily, other than being a part of this gathering. And also, and fairly insidious as sin is, it could lead you to believe that things are better in your own heart and life than they actually are, and it is to that that Jude wants to call our attention. And so he's calling us this morning to contend. In the first 16 verses, he's going to lay out for us the problem, and then in verses 17 to 25, he's going to lay out the solution to that problem. So stay tuned for next week, because next week will let us know what are we supposed to do about this. But this week, we're going to look at what is the issue that Jude wants to address. And in the first place, then this morning, he wants to give us this foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot advance for the truth. We cannot contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. We cannot strive for the gospel unless we have it, unless we have the foundations of it. So, What James is wanting to draw our attention to is there is a tendency to do one of two things, to add to the gospel. So there is the love of God through Jesus Christ, The problem is us. We are sinners. The solution is not us. The solution is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And there's a tendency then to add to that. Jesus Christ crucified plus these other things that we've come up with that we think would be a good idea. We do it in our own heart and life. We've been part of churches that have done it. We've we've heard from other groups that have done it. There's a tendency to add to the gospel. There's also a tendency to take away from the gospel well now that you are free in Christ your sin has been paid for it has been atoned for on the cross of Je- uh, the because of the cross work of Jesus Christ now you are free and so live the life that you always wanted to live which means that you are in fact not then a full recipient of the gospel of Jesus Christ because this recipient of the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to act like Christ So there's a tendency to take away or to add, and James wants to address these things in our, Jude, sorry, wants to address these things in our passage before us this morning. Notice under the first reality of a foundation is humble submission to Jesus. You would think that maybe it would be the truth, but understand this, there are many people who know the truth. There are fewer people who believe it, who submit to it, who live under it. There are scholars and others who could recite the Bible back to any of us here this morning far better than we could, perhaps to our shame, and yet they do not believe it. They do not submit to it. And so Jude, first of all, describes himself in two ways. He describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, and he describes himself further as a brother of James. Now let's deal with the second descriptor first. Jude says that he's a brother of James. Now, there are many Judes, Judah, Judases in the New Testament. There are also many Jameses in the New Testament. And it's possible that post-Judas Iscariot, Jude may have shortened his name from Judah or even Judas down to Jude because uh, you typically don't want to be named Judas moving forward, just like Jezebel uh, fell off the rails as a name for young girls in Israel. So who is this James? If Jude's writing a letter and he wants to identify himself as a brother of someone that most people would know would have to be a James that many people knew who that was and at this point the best candidate for this is James the half-brother of Jesus Christ pastor of the church in Jerusalem author of the book of James if Jude then is a brother to James he is also then a half-brother to Jesus Christ and if you go over to Mark's gospel chapter 6 and verse 3 there are four brothers of Jesus named two of whom are Jude and James So it's entirely possible that this Jew, the Jew that wrote this letter, this sermon, is indeed a half-brother of Jesus Christ. And now we turn to the first descriptor. He describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now I don't know about you, if you have siblings, a particular brothers, I have five, I love them dearly, but I believe that it would be a very difficult struggle for me to admit that any one of them was anything less than what I know them to be. And certainly if one of them had suddenly said to me, and when they turned age 30, by the way, I'm the son of God. I'm God in human form. I'm the Messiah. I am Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. Sure. Right. Think if you would, in your mind, what you would say if one of your siblings declared that to you. We know what the brothers of Jesus thought, or the half-brothers of Jesus thought, of this claim to the throne of Israel, and this claim of being the Messiah, because in John's Gospel, they'd say the feast is coming. Go on up, go down to Jerusalem. Tell everybody you're the king. We'll see how that goes. So other than (laughs) mockery and perhaps a little bit of frustration, because I don't know how you would deal with an actual perfect sibling, I think we all believe that certain siblings that we grew up with didn't deserve or didn't get as much discipline as we did. How would you like being in the same household as a sibling that never was disciplined because they are in fact perfect in a, in a punitive sense? Other than perhaps some frustration and mockery, we don't have any sense at all that the half brothers of Jesus believed that he was who he said he was, not until after the resurrection. And it was interesting after the 9 a.m. service, somebody that was here mentioned to me that a famous skeptic. Uh, came to Nova Scotia to uh, engage in a debate and afterwards this individual who is a member of Grace Baptist went up and engaged them in a conversation and they asked them, what is the hardest thing for you to answer? What is the most difficult question for you to answer as it relates to the truth of Christianity? Do you know what the skeptic said? He said the conversion of James and Jude. How do you (laughs) account for James and Jude Both claiming Jesus as their Lord and Savior, when in fact he is also their half-brother. These individuals that were born to Joseph and Mary after the birth of Jesus. Humble submission to Jesus indeed. Jude says, I'm the brother of James probably, then the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Again, I love my brothers, but uh, I don't recall ever a time, nor do I perceive a time in the future, where I will be their servant But Jude calls himself that. And so for us, to push back against that drift, that tendency towards drifting away from the faith and just sort of coasting, is daily, moment by moment, humble submission to Jesus Christ. I have said this repeatedly, I will continue to say this. Life is not about you and it's not about me. It's about him. Notice that in deep roots in truth, in the second part of verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. We now get to the truth. These are some of the truths of the gospel. And so Jude, almost in a single sentence, encapsulates Romans 8, the golden chain of redemption, and all the beauty of salvation, when he says in the first place, you are called. Understand this, Grace Baptist Church, here and watching online. You did not initiate a relationship with God. You did not love God first. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. God initiated a relationship with you. You and I are rebels against God. We are sinners. God called us out of that into his glorious light, out of darkness into his glorious light, out of hatred into his amazing love, out of rejection and judgment into his incredible grace. God is the one who called. And God called because he loves. We are beloved in God the Father. I do not know exactly where you're at this morning, but know this. If you were in Jesus Christ this morning, if you have repented of your sins and through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, you have hope of salvation, know that you are loved by the one who spoke all things into existence. The one who created everything out of nothing knows your name. According to his son, Jesus Christ knows how many hairs are on your head, knows more about you than you know about yourself and loves you more than you could possibly fathom. You are loved by God. And you are kept for Jesus Christ. You are part of his bride. And the work that God has begun in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And not even your failures can keep you from becoming the person that he has called you to be. And that person is to become like his son. All of these things are true. And again, as we pointed out, it's not just knowing them, it's submitting to them. And then notice in verse 2, daily renewal and reminders. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, as we've said repeatedly here. Remind ourselves of God's mercy. Remind ourselves of the peace that God has granted because of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ the righteous, and the love of God for him and for each other. And Jude says, may that be multiplied to you, abounded in your life, superabundant. What a beautiful time of year Christmas is, and what an amazing opportunity stretches before us to share this truth with those around us. This time of year has a general sense of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. People are in a bit more of a giving mood, and it seems to be that most wonderful time of the year, but apart from the truth, it is empty, it's foundationless. There's no meaning there. Truly, as a number of songwriters have bemoaned, why can't it be Christmas-like all year round? And the Church of Jesus Christ ought to be able to say it is. Not because we are better, we are most certainly not, but because he is amazing, and in us he is making something, making a community, building a family that looks like him. And so this is the foundation. These are the truths that we need to remind ourselves of every day. So what is the reality then in verses 3 and 4? Know what Jude says. I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. What The joy of the indicatives, as we've said. Scripture has indicatives, the truths. Scripture then has imperatives, the commands. And we do ourselves great harm when we get those out of order. Or when we look at those in complete disjunction from each other. The indicatives are what fuel the imperatives. The indicatives are what makes the imperatives possible. The truths are what allows us and enables us and excites us about obeying the commands. And so Jude says, what I wanted to do was I wanted to write you a letter, as others have done, and share with you the joy of our common faith, the belief that we are sinners, that we are not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, and can't work hard enough. The reality that we are rebels against a thrice holy God. And then the beautiful reality that Jesus Christ the righteous has been sent. And we celebrate that at this time of year. He has incarnated God in flesh. Become one of us. Lived righteously. Died sacrificially. Rose to life again from the dead triumphantly. And then is seated at the right hand of the Father. Ever making intercession for us. Jude says, I wanted to write to you those truths. But yet what happened? The duty of the imperatives. But however... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That idea of contending, striving, working hard. It has athletic overtones. There's a goal. And as a team, we're working hard for it. We're putting all of our sweat equity into it. We practice and we play hard. We, we have a common goal and we're working towards it. It's tough. There's many obstacles, but we're contending for this. And Jude says, I'm writing to you because there's been drift. And it, and it grieves me, and, and out of love, I need to, to share that with you. It is not enough to know the truth. We must live the truth, and we must protect the truth and guard the truth. And Jude says, we have a duty, then, to these commands that Scripture uh, gives us. And in verse 4, then, we have this need for constant vigilance. Be aware, be awake, be alert, he says, because there are things that are happening. And notice, certain people have crept in. We quite enjoy when our favorite preacher, pastor, online personality calls out others by name and declares them to be false teachers. Yeah. We're not only on the right team as far as Christians versus non-Christians, which is a completely unbiblical and ungodly attitude, but now, even among those that claim to be Christians, we are even on that right team, and all of those people, well, they're just wrong. And there is some benefit in letting people know that these individuals are speaking falsehood. But far too often, we believe the false teachers are out there, and false professors are out there and not in here, and Jude says they've crept in. They're not out there. they're in here. I need to be aware of it. And there's two streams. there's two things that we need to be aware of. The first is the pull of immorality, and the second is the push against authority. So in the first place, notice the pull of immorality, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. It's not about, then, the commands of Scripture. They remove something from the gospel. The gospel becomes a prayer prayed, an aisle walked, a knee bent. It just simply becomes a card signed, a head bowed. It, it, it's not about then the fullness and the richness of the gospel and what the gospel does to transform a life. It is simply a prayer that was prayed in the past, got me my fire insurance so I don't have to worry about hell, and now my life is lived as I wanted. and that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is to recognize one as a sinner, oneself as a sinner, and to bow in humble submission to the Lord. How can someone who bows in humble submission to the Lord and say, you are Lord of my life, then not have, that, not have Jesus Christ as Lord of their life? So there's a, there's a drift to take away from the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn it into sensuality. And notice in the second place, this push against authority and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Interesting that Jude calls Jesus Christ, his half-brother, <laughs> Master and Lord, after, all, after describing himself as servant. But I digress. What is his point here? There are those that deny the authority of Jesus Christ, the Word and His Word, the Bible. And so we need to move beyond that. There's other things that we need. Jesus Christ is not enough. The gospel is not enough. There's other things out there that we need to listen to and follow. And Jude says, Be careful. There is the pull of immorality and the push against authority. And these two streams are ever present and consistently and constantly there to cause us to drift away from the truth. So there's a need to strive and contend, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God provides. And so lastly, then, in verses 5 through 16, we have this need to contend, and James breaks it up into two sections, by and large, largely following this push and pull of immorality and against authority. It's not a perfect sort of disjunction, uh, a dichotomy. There's certainly a bit of both in these. To reject the authority of God is to slide towards immorality, and a slide to immorality comes as a rejection of the authority of God. However, he kind of deals with the push against authority in verses 5 through 10 and the pull of immorality in verses 11 through 16. So notice the need to contend in the first place, the push against authority in verses 5 to 10. And he begins with three examples from the past. First of all, the Jews, this push against the authority of God in their lives. This group is an interesting group. And what marks them most is murmuring. What want a beautiful word in English because to say it is to describe what it sounds like, especially in a crowd of people. A murmur. I'm reading a book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan author. In the latest chapter that I just finished, he talks about this, the ugliness of discontent. And the Israelites, they actually say, Why did you bring us out here, Moses? We were better off in Egypt. As slaves, do you ever notice our tendency to brighten up the past, to have a generally more rosy color of how things actually were than they actually were? The Israelites were slaves, and yet they actually say to Moses, why did you bring us out here? We were better off where we were. Why did we go this way and not that way? Why is he the leader? Why do we have to eat that? Why isn't there anything to eat? Where's the water? Why isn't there water? Why do we have to eat this every day? Why can't we have meat? There's just just malcontent, discontent, a heart of rebellion against the authority of God. And we read about the Israelites and we say, man, what a bunch. How could you be a part of that bunch? And we fail to look in the mirror because that's us. Why God? Why this? Why this way? Why me? Why now? We are discontented. And discontentment reveals a heart that is lacking submission to the authority of God. The angels, they did not stay within their own position of authority. Most notably, of course, Lucifer. Isaiah 14, what does he say? I will be like the Most High. What does Isaiah say elsewhere in his book? Who is like the Most High? There is no one like the Most High. And so Satan, lifted up with pride, is cast out of heaven, and some of the angels go with him, what we know as demons, rebelling against the authority of God. These individuals, these beings made so beautiful by God and yet not willing to submit to his authority in their lives. And then Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire Serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Now again, there's, more, there's perhaps a, a nod more towards the immorality than rejection of God's authority, but understand a rejection of a God's authority leads to immorality. God had said how things should be inside of Gomorrah, grossly rejected that and found themselves under the judgment of God. And so then Judah, verse 8, switches to the present reality. That's not just back then, it's here now. Yet, in like manner, these people also, the ones from verse 4, the ones that have come in, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. What are they relying on? They're relying on their feelings, they're relying on their thoughts and opinions and perspectives. And they're rejecting authority. And in doing so, they blaspheme the glorious ones, and we'll get more to that in verse 10. But because they cannot fathom the transcendent, they cannot fathom anything larger or bigger or better than themselves, they take anything that even smacks of that and try to bring it down to their level. Does that sound like any society? Currently ours? Then Jude gives us a model example from the past in verse 9. The archangel Michael contends with the devil about the body of Moses. Jude probably quoting from the pseudepigraphical, non-canonical book of the Assumption of Moses. But it's not that the book is non-canonical. It's this example that Jude is saying. He did not presu- pres- uh, presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. What a being of power, an archangel, perhaps one of the cherubim of God. And yet even when he is in a situation, he does not uh, go against God's authority, and he certainly does not misuse his own. He submits to the authority of God and says, the Lord rebuke you. If a being made with this much power submits to God and understands that they are under authority, how much more should we? That beautiful interchange between Jesus and the centurion. The centurion says, I too am a man under authority. I understand how this works. Submission to Jesus Christ, submission to God and his word. It is a lack of submission to the authority of God in our lives that leads us to drift away from truth and into error and ultimately destruction. And notice verse 10, what is the call on us? We need to contend against pride and rebellion. But these people, same as in verse 8, same as in verse 4, blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed, but all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. What are these individuals saying? I know what the word of God says. I understand that there is someone higher than me. I understand that there is an authority over me. I understand that there is someone who has made the earth and all that is therein and so understands how it should operate. I get that. But I think the better way to go is my feelings. What I believe. What I think. That me is a finite being... In the face of the infinite, I think the better way to go is with me, and I'm going to blaspheme anything that is transcendent over me and bring it down to my level, to attempt to destroy it. Does that sound like a society that we are familiar with, that elevates feelings over facts? We have the data. We have more access to information than any previous generation. The facts and logic and consistency do not seem to matter. What matters is, but this is what I think and this is how I feel. This is what I understand instinctively. And Jude says that is an error. Because to live life under your authority and to deny the authority that actually exists over you is destructive. So we need to contend against pride and rebellion and not in other people... Primarily, but in ourselves. How often do we follow the way that we want to go as opposed to what is true? And then notice in verses eleven through sixteen, under the need to contend, the pull of immorality. James once again, Jude once again sorely has three examples from the past. For they woe to them, he says, they walked in the way of Cain, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Cain wants to do things his way, and wants God to put his stamp of approval on what he has come up with. Again, does that sound like anybody that we know? Does it sound like any society that we know? Here's what we have come up with. We think this is amazing. Now, we want you to put your stamp of approval on this. We want you to affirm our immorality. God does not. He rejects Cain's offering and warns him about following the way of immorality and a rejection of his authority. And what does Cain do? Commits the first homicide, kills his own brother. We have Balaam. Balaam is a prophet of God who should be a man of integrity, and he says that he can only speak what God tells him to speak. He plays at truthfulness and integrity, but in reality, he's a prophet for hire. What do you want to hear? And I'll tell you that. It's almost as if every marketing agency in North America has gone the way of Balaam. What do you want to hear? Even if we don't believe it, we're just trying to sell something and we want you to buy it, so we'll tell you what you want to hear, what seems to be in the ether. And so Balaam comes and says, curse Israel. And Balaam says, I can only say what God says. And as we know the story, his donkey has more wisdom than he does. But what is the error of Balaam? The story goes on. We oftentimes end there where Balaam cannot curse Israel. What does he tell Balak to do? He says, allow your people to intermarry, intermingle with the people of Israel. Draw them away from the one true God into the worship of other gods, which included a lot of immorality, and you'll pervert the nation of Israel from within. And a nation that is supposed to honor and worship God that does not honor and worship God is a nation that is headed for destruction. Balaam's error can be ours if we allow ourselves to go our way and do what we feel like as opposed to what is true. And Korah's rebellion, these individuals that had enough of Moses' leadership and were following their own impulses and desires and God says, anybody who does not want to perish in Korah's judgment step away and the ground opens up and swallows them whole. Immorality and a push against God's authority lead to judgment and destruction. Three more examples from the past, which leads us to the present reality in verses 12 and 13. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, shipwreck-inducing individuals, individuals that are destructive, that take life, they don't give it. They feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, individuals that should be, uh, as leaders, desirous of serving other people, but instead they're only in it for themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, the promise of rain without any actual rain. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. And these individuals talk a good game, but there's no truth there. Notice they are fruitless trees in late autumn, long past the time when the harvest should be expected, but there's nothing there. There's nothing of substance there. They don't have any fruit on their limbs. They're dead. They're twice dead and uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They don't go anywhere as the sea does not. God has set the boundaries. Tides come and tides go but the sea doesn't go anywhere. But what are they doing? They're taking all of the filth and the darkness that are covered in the waters and they're belching them up on the shore for all to see. They're proud of their immorality. For And then wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Not following the predetermined path by God but going their own way. No A purpose, aimless, wandering. Jude says these individuals are there, not out there, in here, potentially. So be awake and be alert. Notice this prophecy from the past. Enoch prophesied, probably the book of Enoch, and together another non-canonical book that Jude quotes. God executed judgment to convict all the ungodly, Of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Do you get James or Jude's point? These individuals are ungodly. They do not actually take into consideration what God has said. They live according to their own feelings and desires. And they are oftentimes chameleons acting one way with the people of God and acting another way with others. They're just following their hearts. Please don't do that because Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked. Notice then in the last place contending against lust and greed. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to a gain advantage. It's all for them about their lusts and about greed, about gaining for themselves. And so, Grace Baptist Church, what do we do about this? We will learn more about what to do about this as Jude continues. But for us this morning, how do we respond to this? I think we need to do some good work, even this afternoon, to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, thanks be to God for what he's doing at Grace Baptist Church. People are coming to faith in Christ. People are being baptized. People are being united. Small groups are thriving. People are in God's word. What an amazing season we're having at Grace Baptist Church. But be careful because there's always a tendency and a temptation towards drift. So look in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we full of pride and rebellion? Where in our lives are we not submissive to the authority of God? We like 90% of the Bible, but there's those verses that, does God really know what he's doing? Has God said all the way back to Genesis chapter 3? Where are we not following the word of God? Where are we not under its authority in our lives? And then are we contending against lust and greed? Where in our lives is it about us? As we go into this time of year, it's very easy to be sucked up into the, the, the consumerism of this time of year. Again, it's amazing that We have in our neighbors to the south, and that has filled over the border. This is not a Canadian-U.S. comment. It's just mirrored to say, it's amazing to me, that in the United States of America on Thursday, they have a whole day dedicated to being thankful for what we have, and the very next day is dedicated to getting as much as we possibly can for the cheapest price available. And that is not an indictment on Americans. That is an indictment on humans, because that is all of us, and we do it here in Canada as well. How do you spend time saying thank you God for all that I have and then rushing out and trampling over people to get more? Because that's the human heart. Because that's all of us. We are all susceptible to greed and to lust. The drift. What is the antidote? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot add or take away It is the pure, unadulterated grace of God through Jesus Christ that will keep us where we need to be. And so let us look to him in prayer as we prepare for a time of communion this morning. Father, thank you for your great love for us, your goodness to us, your kindness. Thank you for working in our hearts and lives to bring us to the place where we see ourselves as we truly are sinners in need of a Savior. And thanks be to God that you have made us saints because of Jesus Christ the righteous, and in Christ we are called, loved, and kept. Father, there is a tendency in all of our hearts to drift, to drift away from the glorious reality of the gospel, to add to that our own works, our own things, to add to that on top of that our own traditions, our own things that we now add and call the gospel when they are not. And also to remove things from the gospel, the demands of the gospel that are fulfilled in Christ but are realized in us, makes us different. And if we are not being transformed by the gospel, then we have no right to say that we believe it and are trusting in it for our eternal salvation. So help us, Father, to examine ourselves by the gospel. And to do that daily and consistently, to contend, strive for the faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.